Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hydro-Quebec is the fourth largest hydropower company in the world. It produces the cheapest low-carbon electricity in North America. But how it got here involves a history of encroaching on some of Quebec's indigenous people. Later, we'll talk with a reporter and host at New Hampshire Public Radio about that complicated history. That's later. Now, how much do you know about the U.S.'s relationship with Canada? Strategically, it makes sense to be friendly with a border country, but what factors led to the ties both countries have maintained for years? Coming up, a political scientist with a focus on international relations and Canadian politics will join us to answer our questions and yours. But first, what has led to this trade dispute between the U.S. and Canada? And how will it impact us here in New England? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome to the show Daniel Dale. He's Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. We're going to be learning a little bit more about uh, how uh, and why the U.S. and Canada are have been typically close allies. But we wanted to focus in on news in recent weeks about this trade dispute with its closest allies, the U.S.'s trade dispute uh, with Canada, Mexico, and also the EU. Let's talk about um, how Canada is responding uh, to uh, this increase in tariffs uh, from the Trump administration. So Canada has announced that it will impose retaliatory tariffs on what it says is an equivalent amount of U.S. products. This is in response to Trump's tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum. Um, Canada says that those tariffs will come into effect on July 1st, uh, Canada Day, uh, coincidentally or not, which is this weekend. And Canada plans to hit not only U.S. steel and aluminum, but also a variety of other U.S. products, um, from playing cards to whiskey to orange juice. And they, they say that uh, the this retaliation list is targeted at swing states that matter politically, and also particularly important Republican lawmakers. So Canada is trying to put pressure on the Trump administration and, and the Republican-controlled Congress by retaliating against the products that are important in their districts. Now, what has been, what is the White House's goals in imposing these tariffs in the first place against Canada? Well, um, they say that they want to revive the struggling U.S. steel and aluminum industry. And their argument is that, you know, by making it harder for um, foreign countries to import their their own steel and aluminum, uh, to export their own steel and aluminum to the U.S., the U.S. industry will have some sort of breathing space to to uh, reinvigorate itself, you know, to fire up those plants that have been shuttered over the past 35 years and, and, and do better than it's been doing. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in March, I believe, uh, uh, President Trump uh, had said that uh, Canada would be exempt from uh, these uh, tariffs. But what changed between March and today, Daniel? Well, he, he never really seems to want to exempt Canada, um, but he was lobbied to do it by people in his own administration and 
senior Republicans in Congress. He gave Canada that, that first exemption, then a second exemption. But he always said, you know, if we don't make progress on NAFTA, then we're going to take that exemption off. Some people were skeptical that he actually would remove the exemption, but he, but he ended up doing so. Uh, we know that the dispute has escalated to the point of, of personal insults. Uh, we have a clip. This is uh, uh, President Trump's economic advisor, Peter Navarro, saying this about Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, after the G7 summit earlier this month in Quebec. There's a, a special place in hell for any foreign leader that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Donald J. Trump and then tries to stab him in the back on the way out the door. And that's what bad faith Justin Trudeau did with that stunt press conference. That's what weak, dishonest Justin Trudeau did. So, Daniel, what is the response uh, from Canadians to uh, this idea that's bad faith Justin Trudeau, uh, these insults that are coming not only um, from some of the administration uh, level uh, members of President Trump, but even President Trump himself? He, they were upset from what uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau had said right after the G7 summit. Tell us exactly what he said. Well, it was it's confusing to Canadian officials and to a lot of others because at that post-G7 press conference, Trudeau just said the same things that he'd been saying about Trump's tariffs for a week. Um, he said that um, it's an insult, an affront to Canada, given that the tariffs are officially being imposed on national security grounds, and, and given that Canada has fought with the U.S., you know, for decades, and Canadian soldiers have died with American soldiers, you know, in the First and Second World War. And so Trudeau just, you know, in a very measured diplomatic tone, um, said those same things. Trump, for whatever reason, uh, got angry about it this time, and apparently dispatched Navarro and economic advisor Larry Kudlow to the, the Sunday shows to lob personal insults at Trudeau. And so the Canadian, the on-the-record Canadian response is that Canada does not engage in such ad hominem attacks in its international relations and doesn't believe that such attacks are a productive way to conduct diplomacy. Daniel Dells on the phone with us. He's Washington bureau chief for the Toronto Star. As we look into uh, this trade dispute between the U.S. and Canada. Now, Daniel, uh, U.S. and Canada have been close allies for years. But let's talk about the trading partnership and why this is a big deal if these uh, tariffs, uh, these retaliatory tariffs are are sent our way and what uh, President Trump has uh, recommended as well. Yeah, I mean, this this is a, a massive trading relationship. I The numbers have slipped my mind, but it's, you know, it's, it's billions of dollars um, every week, obviously. Um, and the U.S. is, the, it, the U.S. market is central to Canadian companies. Obviously, it's our biggest export market. And the particular businesses that are being hit are also important. You know, there's about $5 billion of uh, steel trade each way per year, for example. Um, Canada sends much more aluminum to the U.S. than the U.S. sends to Canada. We're talking about billions of dollars there as well. So these are these are big businesses. Um, we don't know what the macroeconomic impact of the tariffs will be. Some economists say that the impact might be quite small. You know, you might notice price increases if you're a consumer on particular consumer products, on grocery items, for example, but that the broader economy won't feel it that much. But the danger, I think, is, you know, if this continues escalating, if we continue doing a, a tit-for-tat um, a series of responses, then, you know, after a while, there might be at least a slight impact on the economy as a whole. I understand that uh, the U.S. is Canada's biggest trading partner, and Canada is our second largest trading par- partner after China, so there's a lot at stake here. There absolutely is, yeah. I mean, the um, NAFTA is, is uh, 
hugely important to companies on both sides of the border. Um, and so when we're talking about tariffs or we're talking about renegotiating this this 24-year-old uh, trade agreement, um, we're talking about, you know, uh, issues that, that really matter to, you know, to literally millions of people on both sides of the border. There's something that you said earlier that I wanted to uh, maybe drill down a little bit more and, and how the Trump administration is justifying these tariffs based on national security. Can you explain that rationale to us? Well, in, they're using uh, a 1964 trade law that d- defines national security very broadly. And so it basically says that um, the economic health of an industry can be important to national security. So they're not explicitly saying, you know, Canada is a national security threat to us. They're saying having a, a bad, weak steel industry in the United States is a national security threat to the United States. Canada still, though, takes offense because... You know, the Canadian argument is, you know, even if you do have a weak domestic steel industry, we are not going to desert you in some sort of hypothetical crisis. We're still going to continue providing you the steel you need. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, the U.S. administration is relying on this, this loose, broad interpretation, but Canada still takes offense. You can join our conversation on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Again, Daniel Dale uh, from the Toronto Star on the phone with us. And I want to welcome into our discussion now Jeff Ayers. Uh, He's with us from NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Jeff is professor of political science at St. Michael's College in Vermont. He focuses on international relations and Canadian politics. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so how unprecedented is this trade fight between uh, our country and, and Canada? Well, I think it's, as, as your uh, first host has been discussing, it's uh, somewhat unprecedented in terms of the level of personal attacks and the way in which social norms have been undermined. There certainly is a, a long history of extraordinarily good relations between the two countries, but there have been some uh, incidents in the in the past, past history uh, involving trade that we could talk a little bit about where there's been uh, disagreements between the two countries. And there's certainly been uh, concern over the decades, well up into the latter part of the 20th century on the part of Canadians as to whether they should go all in and have a free trade agreement with the United States. So there's a, it's a, I would say it's the most stable and mutually beneficial relationship in the world, but there's certainly a history of occasional spats between the two countries. Tell us about some of those spats. <laughs> well, one, if one for example, would be back in uh, the 1930s, I think 1930, when the Smoot-Hawley tariff uh, was, cre- was passed by Congress. And uh, at the, as we were moving into the Depression, I mean, there's some observers right now are concerned that the United States, uh, as we're increasingly acting in a very mercantilist, mercantilist way by uh, slapping tariffs on various countries around the world, that we could be setting ourselves up for a significant trade dispute and a, and a dramatic decline in trade. I think that Canada-U.S. trade fell by over 75% after the Smoot-Hawley tariff was instituted in 1930. Um, there was also something known as the Nixon shock under President Nixon back in the early 1970s. I think it was 1971 that the Nixon administration applied a 10% tariff on goods coming into the United States. And it again, it shocked Canadians, uh, this deep, long-lasting uh, historical and cultural relationship, as well as ultimately, especially post-World War II, political and economic relationship. It was very shocking. Uh, and then, in fact, Nixon and Pierre Trudeau, the current prime minister's father, did not have a good relationship. And I think within a year or so, Nixon declared the special relationship between Canada and the United States dead. 
others. So there's been a, it's interesting. Sometimes it has a little personal side to it. The, the last uh, incident I might mention is a really significant debate in Canada in the 1980s, culminating in the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement that was signed in 1988, came into being in 1989. That was a a really big deal. Uh, lots of debate, lots of uh, soul searching and questioning as to whether Canadians should sign a free trade agreement uh, that I think ultimately has been extraordinarily beneficial for Canada as well as the uh, United States. Now, Jeff, you're based in Vermont, uh, very close to the border with Quebec. What does this mean for Vermont and other um, states in the U.S. that also are exporting uh, to Canada? Yeah, it's a really if, if what we what we mean is if this all continues to go through, if there's a if if Canada in fact does retaliate with tariffs against American U.S. goods as of July 1st, and in, and then should the Trump administration follow up, the one of the even perhaps greater concerns is that the Trump administration is threatening to put 25% tariffs on auto exports from Canada, which would be a huge have a huge impact. So it's countrywide. Obviously, New England it would hit New England significantly. Uh, there's over 35 states uh, right now uh, across the country that um, Canada is the largest export market for. Interestingly enough, um, it's not in uh, Connecticut. I think Can uh, France is Connecticut's largest export market. But the other uh, New England states and the vast majority of other Can uh, U.S. states have Canada as their largest export market. And so this uh, this uh, growing brewing trade dispute could certainly impact consumers. I mean, on both sides of the border, but on our side, we would see prices go up on a variety of different goods. So Vermonters uh, obviously are con well. Vermonters are concerned about the same sort of things that people across New England are. But we are certainly proud of our maple syrup industry, and that's actually something that's on the list of of, tar of products that could be targeted by Canada. Uh, but I think uh, consumers would feel it. Businesses would certainly feel it. Businesses are, are there's a lot of uncertainty right now. Uh, one of the issues that just doesn't seem to be understood all that well by the administration or talked about is just how deeply integrated all these different sectors already are from the auto industry, the steel industry, the dairy industry. There's such deep integration between the two countries that uh, gearing up for this type of uh, a trade dispute between the two countries just doesn't make economic sense or political sense. This is where we live. Uh, we're looking into uh, what's caused this trade dispute between U.S. and Canada. Again, longtime allies. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Jim's uh, been holding from Darien. Jim, go ahead. Good morning. How are you? We're doing well. What's your question or comment? Well, I, I think this is all just bluster on the part of the Trump administration you know, part of his approach toward nationalism. Uh, you know, I've, I've lived in, in the United States for almost 55 years now and uh, naturalized after living here 15 years, but I kept my Canadian citizenship. I'm proud to be a Canadian. I uh, fly the Maple Leaf. Um, what I used to know as Dominion Day. Canada Day is coming up July 1st. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of Canadians down here. We, we, we pass pretty well. People don't know we're not Americans. But we're very proud of our heritage, and uh, I, I think anybody that in the states thinks that Canada state is uh, grossly mistaken. So I think this will all work itself out, but I think the Trump administration is just posturing at this point. Well, thank you, Jim, uh, for your comments. I wanted to get our guests to respond. Uh, Daniel Dale, what did you think about uh, what Jim was saying there? Well, I think uh, respectfully that um, it's past the point of bluster. Um, 
I think at first, you know, Canadian officials thought the same. I think it's a reasonable thought. Um, but now we're talking about real tariffs on, on real people. You know, the steel and aluminum tariffs are in place. There's a serious threat of auto tariffs. I guess those could be bluster. Um, and, and, but in addition to all that, you know, we have the Trump administration taking a very hard line in NAFTA negotiations, and we don't know how those will work out. And so um, I think, you know, the, the moment that it passed um, the, the, the point of bluster was when those exemptions were removed and steel and aluminum tariffs were indeed applied to, to Canadian businesses. Uh, Daniel, if you could tell, talk a little bit more about the impact on auto manufacturers in this U.S. because of the tariffs on Canada, the steel tariffs. Well, I mean, the, the auto industry uses is a, is a major user of steel, but I haven't seen any um, hard reporting on how this very integrated industry um, might be impacted. And so I, I wouldn't feel comfortable talking specifically about that sector. Uh, Jeff, can you talk a little bit more about integration? Well, I, I, again, I think first relating to the caller, I think on the one hand, it, this does fit uh, the broader posturing of the Trump administration. This is kind of the, I suppose, this might even be the art of the deal. I mean, there's this, this approach to diplomacy and international relations that the Trump administration takes that all ends up being very insulting. It's this zero-sum, you know, transactional approach that uh, is undermining uh, norms internationally as well as, I said, social norms. So I, I think on the one hand, this is kind of a, a negotiating, blustering tactic. But I also agree with Daniel that it's gone beyond that now. And we actually have a lot of evidence beyond just our relationship with Canada of the United States increasingly pulling back from collaborating inter internationally. The integration piece, again, I also agree, we don't know yet what the impact would be, except that it would be tremendous in terms of uh, uh, if, there, if the Trump administration were to put a, a significant tariff on uh, autos coming into the United States. I mean, it is, we, you, you all appropriately went over the depth of the relationship. It's a, uh, the, the uh, second largest bilateral trade relationship, relationship in the world. It's over $670 billion in U.S. goods and services last year. Um, we, uh, the, you know, Canada is the largest market for uh, U.S. agricultural imports, it's, I mean, which is ironic because that we've had, you know, part, part of what's going on as well as I, I, I agree with Daniel that, that Canadians and I agree with Canadians being confused because and uncertain as to what the United States position is, because on the one hand, I think the Trump administration started out threatening uh, these tariffs to apply these tariffs in part because it was dissatisfied with the pace of the NAFTA negotiations. Then it shifted to uh, linking these tariffs to na on national security grounds. And then even most recently, the Trump administration was blaming uh, Canada's uh, uh, you know, protection of its dairy dairy industry, and ironically, the United States has a, a surplus with uh, uh, in, in terms of dairy with Canada. So there's a lot of confusion and misinformation out there. Now, uh, Jeff Ayers, I wanted to ask you as well, we know what the, the federal government stance is uh, to this point, but what about if we're looking at New England and uh, partnerships between, uh, you know, governors here in New England and uh, with leaders in Canada, is there a role to play there and how this, this, this situation could maybe um, not be as uh, you know, difficult come July 1st if these tariffs do come down the line from Canada? Absolutely. There's a huge role. And, and that's uh, one of the um, really important foundations of the Canada-U.S. relationship is what goes on at the sub-federal sub level are uh, multiple different ways in which uh, states and provinces and citizens, of course, of both 
states, both countries are integrated. So one of the key organizations, for example, is the New England Governors and Canadian Eastern Premiers uh, Group or Association. It's made up of 11 states and provinces, including Quebec, all of the New England states and the Maritimes. And they they meet annually. The uh, I think it's a really important example of it's called what we call paradiplomacy or subfederal international relations, where uh, uh, groups are are uh, that particularly in for instance in this relationship, those uh, members of that uh, association are really working on a daily basis to develop networks, to deepen the relationship, to really share ideas and advance common interests. And uh, they have a their upcoming annual conference. I think is in Stowe, Vermont. This August, uh, if you, and give you an example of how different their interactions are with what we're hearing at the national level right now. Last year, in 2017, the uh, pre- uh, premiers and governors passed several resolutions that were supportive of trade integration and, and touted the benefits of cross-border trade. There was a resolution passed uh, focusing on the importance of acting collaboratively against climate change and how the region would respond in emergencies during climate change. So I think not only is this actually a really important uh, example of the kind of collaboration that's ongoing, I think it's even more crucial right now to demonstrate that we can, you know, beyond the bluster or even potentially the really damaging acts at the, at the national level, there's a lot of goodwill and cooperation going on at the, at the sub-federal level. Uh, Danielle Dale is also with us again, a Washington bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Daniel, you've been doing some unscientific polling of since the the dispute has has come into the the news headlines. You know what Americans are thinking about this, as well as Canadians. What can you tell us about it? Well, Canadians are very unhappy. Um, we've seen scientific polling. Um, in in the last week that shows that Trump's approval rating among Canadians has fallen to 11%. There's 74% support for Trudeau's retaliatory tariffs, according to this poll. And this this crosses party lines. You know, there's slightly stronger support among uh, Trudeau's uh, liberal voters, of course, but even conservative voters, the opposition voters, are strongly behind the prime minister on this one. And there is, I think, as the prime minister has, has said, a sense of personal offense that that Canada of all countries is being targeted here. As far as Americans use, um, you know, it's not exactly clear. We haven't had polling um, about the tariffs on Canada in particular, but um, I spent a a day in a a Walmart in uh, North Carolina, and I asked people uh, entering and exiting how they felt about both the tariffs and the Trump administration's personal insults of Prime Minister Trudeau. And it, it basically broke down along partisan lines. You know, I was curious because Canada has long enjoyed overwhelmingly bipartisan approval in the U.S. It is not a bipartisan issue. Uh, one poll in 2016 showed Canada had 75% approval, 3% disapproval. So this, this, you know, this crosses all party lines. Um, but what I found in, in North Carolina, at least in, you know, in this, this one location, was that Republicans thought that Canada had been taking advantage of the United States, as Trump said. Um, they thought that Trudeau was wrong. Some of them cited the milk tariffs. And so it was fascinating um, how quickly Trump's talking points had changed the views of at least some of his voters. While, you know, Democratic voters I encountered were aghast at this. You know, there's a Canada close ally. Um, why would you hurt them? They were offended that, you know, the Trump administration was insulting Trudeau personally. And so, yeah, it, I think the fear for Canadian diplomats is that Trump makes Canada just another partisan issue rather than the subject of a, a universal American consensus. 
Now, uh, Danielle, before we let you go, you just mentioned uh, when you were polling some uh, North Carolinians, uh, I think at, at a Walmart, they mentioned the milk tariff. And this is something that President Trump has complained, the dairy supply management system in Canada. Can you break that down for us in two minutes? <laughs> yes, I'll try. It's, it's a complicated subject. Um, basically, Canada does indeed have a, a strict protectionist system for dairy and poultry. Trump is focused on dairy, and it's a system of uh, of, of a bunch of a bunch of policies. But the, the policies that matter to foreign producers, American producers, are uh, tight quotas on imports, so it's hard for foreigners to get much access to the Canadian market. And then, in addition to those quotas, um, any any imports. Um, over top of the quota amount are are subjected to very high tariffs, you know, more than 200% on things like milk and cream uh, and other dairy products. And so the system is meant to protect Canadian farmers, Canadian suppliers. Um, and in some ways it has, it has, you know, something in common with what Trump is trying to do in protecting American industries of various kinds. But um, Canadians themselves have uh, split views on what's called supply management because uh, it results in Canada having much higher dairy prices than there are in the United States and in some other countries. Um, other Canadians see it as important, you know, to protect domestic agriculture. So, you know, there are, this is politically controversial in Canada as well as with Trump now, um, but the, the dairy lobby, dairy farmers are quite powerful uh, politically in Canada. Um, all parties do not want to anger them. And when Trudeau even hinted that he was willing to make some sort of concession to Trump in NASA talks over this, the leader of the conservative opposition, Andrew Scheer, said, what do you, what do you mean by flexibility? What do you mean by, you know, are, are you talking about giving up any, kind of, any part of supply management? And so even if Trudeau wanted to give in to Trump, you know, there's pressure from the right, from the conservative party, to not give in in, in any way. So th- this is obviously very complicated. I think you did it in two minutes. Good job, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Daniel Dale is Washington Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Again, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Political scientist Jeff Ayers is going to stay with us as we learn more about the U.S.-Canada relations through the years. Now, are you an American who visits Canada often? Are you a Canadian living here in the U.S.? We want to hear from you, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning how a current trade dispute between the U.S. and Canada has soured relations in recent weeks, but we also wanted to dive back into history to learn how our relationship with our northern neighbor got to where it is today. From NPR studios in Washington, D.C., Jeff Ayers is with us, professor of political science at St. Michael's College in Vermont, who focuses on international relations and Canadian politics. Uh, Jeff, uh, we heard uh, President Trump also recently uh, take a deep dive into North American history, but he got it a little wrong and talking about the War of 1812. Uh, what was your response uh, to what he said, uh, accusing the Canadians of trying to burn down the White House? Well, one of my re- <clears throat> first thoughts was that you know, Canada didn't exist then. I mean, the Canada, the Dominion of Canada came into being in 1867, so that was actually the British that were more directly involved in uh, the War of 1812. And so I think, you know, part of that, part of my th- thinking is just a lack of uh, reflects the the broader lack of understanding and appreciation of of Canada U.S. relations in Canadian history on the on the part part of Americans here uh, on our side of the border. But I think you know I, I, what you just said as you were leading in. I I, I also want to back up and say that 
I think where, where how we've gotten to this point, yes, we're in, in a, a moment of fairly unprecedented uh, verbal assaults and a pretty significant brewing trade dispute, but we also are, are still at a moment of, as I tried to say earlier on, a remarkably stable and beneficial relationship that involves military cooperation, involves economics, involves you know, phenomenal cross-border activity. Over 20 million Canadians visited the United States last year. Uh, cultural relationships, you know, so we can, things that I appreciate very much, as you said, I live in the greater Burlington, Vermont area. Uh, yesterday, uh, June 24th, was it's called Saint-Jean-de-Baptiste Day. It's Quebec's national holiday. And if you go on Church Street in Burlington on that day, you'll see all the fleur-de-lis flying as a kind of welcome to uh, Quebecers who are coming in. So I think, you know, across the border, there's a great deal of goodwill and support for each other uh, that that's going on at the subfederal level, and I think also at the at the national level. I think there's a one of the one of the strategies that Canadians do extremely well is they they understand our political process very well, and they know that it's very important to uh, continue to keep good relations and lobby uh, Congress, not just the president. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot good that's still going on, and we can talk a little bit about that. It's important that you did bring up that point because it's not just about sharing business and border, but also the culture and being up in Vermont, seeing that relationship between uh, Vermont and and Quebec. But after the War of eighteen twelve, let's talk a little bit about that stabil- stability that has been there since those times. Mm-hmm. Sure. No, I think so. What really the stabil the particular foundations of this, again, very stable and beneficial relationship uh, emerged in the 20th century. And I think uh, around World War II, uh, the, the relationships between prime ministers and presidents are are oftentimes key. And at that time in, in the 1940s, I think it was actually 1940, that Mac- Prime Minister Mackenzie King developed a very strong relationship with President Franklin Roosevelt. And they signed a uh, 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 several different uh, agreements. They established a permanent joint board of defense to collaborate extensively and deeply integrate uh, uh, cooperation uh, together in the face of uh, the, uh, World War II. Um, f- uh, following that, in the 1950s, uh, NORAD was created, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. So the United States and Canada right now, to this day, continue to jointly uh, police, if you will, North American airspace and air sovereignty, and it, it's a it's a, a crucial way in which we collaborate in the event of uh, of, of some sort of attack on the uh, northern part of the North American continent, and and as a auto pact from the 1960s, and then again the uh, economically the free trade agreement, which was also formed in part by presidential uh, prime ministerial relations. At the time, the prime minister in Canada was Brian Mulroney of the of the progressive conservatives. He had a majority government in the 80s, and he formed a strong relationship with President Ronald Reagan. And I think that personal relationship helped uh, uh, the, the two countries come together to sign the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. It, as I said, it was, it was very controversial in Canada. It was actually somewhat similar. The debate was somewhat similar to the debate over NAFTA that we've had in the United States, concerns about potential job loss. But uh, overall, the, there's just been a continual building on this foundation politically, economically, culturally, socially, uh, that I think, again, marks this as, as one of the more remarkable international relationships in the world. Uh, we heard from a, a caller earlier who uh, is Canadian and now lives in the U.S. talking about, you know, you can't tell the difference between a Canadian and American. Can we talk more about the similarities between the two countries and uh, the, the fact that so many people have ties across the border, especially when we look up in Vermont? 
Well, they, there are. There's an incredibly deep uh, shared cultural and historical heritage. Uh, the uh, uh, tens of thousands of uh, Francophones, French speakers left Quebec or great uh, the eastern part of Canada to come into New England to you know to work in the mills. I mean, there's been a great deal of cross-border uh, movement. Um, you know, my own, my own family, my of my mother's side is uh, was was born in Ontario. My youngest daughter was born in Ontario. For for different, we have we have so many Americans and Canadians have family ties that I think uh, you know connect the two. Uh, that in, that uh, there, there's a certainly a commonality in language. Uh, certainly outside of Quebec, we, there's a, obviously a very important uh, French piece t- to Canada. But uh, generally speaking, Canadians and Americans share the same language. They share similar political, e- political and economic values. And I, one of the things that I try to tell Canadians sometimes is that, you know, there are, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but there are more uh, people in Canada with Canadian values than there are Canadians, if that makes any sense. In other words, they, so it's not this giant monolith of, of antagonistic uh, of anti-Canadians that exist in the United States, there's a, there's a great deal of affection, and I do think I do think this is uh, an un, this is a particularly unusual uh, dispute right now. But also, if you have to put it in the broader uh, picture of what's going on with the United States globally. Uh, there's also, you had mentioned earlier, and I know uh, Daniel had also alluded to this, that there's not a lot of knowledge that Americans have about Canada. And I'm curious if you could talk more about the country's relationship with Great Britain. Uh, Canada's relationship? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, Canada, obviously, in, you know, the one of the, it still has a very strong relationship with Britain. In um, 1867, uh, the British North America Act, uh, an act of Britain's parliament created the Dominion of Canada. And I, you know, most historians look at that in part. It was it was a moment where the UK was looking at the United States after the Civil War and, and was looking at a very powerful uh, Union army. And there were great concerns that uh, were there not a sovereign entity, which is what gradually became Canada nor- north of the border after 1867, we may have, uh, you know, acted on manifest destiny up north. So I think uh, but but gradually, uh, Canada has assumed greater and greater uh, independence, if you will, from the the UK. I will simp- I will say something that puzzles Americans. Obviously, is when you if you go to Canada and you look at their currency and you see the Queen mm-hmm. on the money. The the Queen uh, Queen Elizabeth II is still the head of state. So the crown is is the is the head of state and uh, the head of government in Canada is the prime minister currently Justin Trudeau. However, ha- you know, having said that, that's a that that's not a. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say o- that the overwhelming majority of of Canadians are overt monarchists, it's, but it's a, it's actually an important difference politically between the two countries to have a separation between a head of state and head of government. We don't have that in the United States, uh, so there remains obviously great historic ties, economic ties between uh, Canada and Britain. But I would certainly make the case that uh, sharing the border that we do and sharing the, the continental history that we do and, and sharing this, the size of this, of, of this uh, trading relationship, again, being the second largest bilateral trade relationship in the world, I think, are, I think there has been kind of a shift almost uh, from the Canada-Britain relationship in the post-World War II era, there was, I think there was a, the special relationship shifted to from Canada and Britain more to Canada and the United States. 
Now, I wanted to ask uh, what the Canadians' relationship is with the Indigenous people uh, there, also known as the First Nations, and how that has how that's different than um, you know how, what we have reconciled with here in the United States for what was done to the Native Americans here. That's a great question. I mean, it's uh, the it'll be very interesting to see next year is the uh, quickly I'll say that next year is the federal election for uh, Justin Trudeau's Liberals will be gunning for another majority, and certainly one of the major campaign pledges of uh, Trudeau's liberals and Trudeau himself was to uh, kind of have a rapprochement, uh, to have a new relationship with Canada's indigenous peoples. Uh, just in terms of the the number of First Nations peoples, there's three different groups, if you will. There's Inuit, there's Métis, and there's uh, First Nations community. And there are simply more uh, Aboriginal peoples in Canada per capita than there are uh, uh, in the United States vis-a-vis in terms of Canadian population, in terms of our population. So there's in some ways a little bit more of a political impact, but there's also a very interesting history in, in terms of the way in which uh, Indigenous peoples uh, and the, the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the and Canadian, successive Canadian governments have evolved. Uh, and there seems to be a, a right now a much greater willingness, even though there's a lot to be, uh, much has, much more has to be done, I think, to address social economic concerns facing indigenous peoples there's been a willingness on the part of successive canadian governments including the one that preceded justin trudeau the conservative stephen harper's government to speak openly about uh, transgressions to speak openly about the reservation system to, to speak openly about the pain and suffering indigenous peoples experienced in canada and that's i think in part what justin trudeau's uh, campaign a few years ago he he, he recognized that there is there seemed to be a um, in, in part, it's a more of a political, cultural openness on the part of Canadians to uh, uh, reach some sort of, um, uh, I'll say it again, a kind of a rapprochement or, or renew the relationship with First Nations peoples in Canada. Coming up, we're going to learn more about uh, how Quebec's hydropower company was historically built dams without regards to the autonomy and rights of Canada's native people. But before we let you go, uh, Jeff, uh, because we wanted to focus in on Canada today, is there one thing that Americans don't understand about Canada that we should? It's hmm, a great question. I, uh, one thing, <laughs> now, I don't, I don't. I mean, I've been teaching Canadian politics for twenty-five years now, and I think. Um, it would just be it would just be very valuable for us to pay more attention i think to to uh, and i oftentimes say something that's not probably seen as funny on the canadian side that canada is actually a foreign country so i mean sometimes it might be worth our recognizing that it's not it it really is a foreign country they have a right to have their own national interests but also to understand the long history that's been so benefits. We are so fortunate, let's put it that way, to have Canada on our northern border and to have had the relationship that we've had with them. Jeff Ayers is professor of political science at St. Michael's College in Vermont. He focuses on international relations and Canadian politics. Joined us today from NPR studios in Washington, D.C. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, what kind of relationship does Canada have with its indigenous people today, known as First Nations? We're going to hear more about that from a reporter and host from New Hampshire Public Radio, joining us to explain this within the context of the quest for cheap hydropower in Quebec. More after the break.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about Canada today, and now we're zooming in on Quebec, specifically Hydro-Quebec, the fourth largest hydropower company in the world. It produces the cheapest low-carbon electricity in North America. But how it got here involves a history of encroaching on some of Quebec's indigenous people. For more about this, from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio, Sam Evans-Brown joins us. He's host of Outside In, a podcast at New Hampshire Public Radio. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit briefly about your podcast, Outside In. Again, I mentioned you're from New Hampshire, but this was something you were focusing in on on Quebec and, and the culture there. Yeah, so so this was a project that we launched last year, and I spent most of the year working on it. We traveled up to northern Canada twice um, for, you know, about 10 days at a time. And just to give folks a, a sense of how far we drove, um, you know, there's a lot of Canada up there. Uh, <laughs> and and we the first trip was about a 20-hour drive north up along the north shore of the St. Lawrence River. And so we were investigating not just the the history of Hydro-Quebec, but also the, the connection between the development of hydropower in Quebec and uh, the, the sort of longstanding push to export the, the production of those dams down into the New England electrical grid. The relevance uh, to this story in New England because Massachusetts is trying to buy hydropower from Quebec? Yeah, there's a there's currently been a deal inked between uh, Hydro-Quebec, uh, a, a power line developer uh, in Maine, Central Maine Power, is going to build the line that will connect Hydro-Quebec to New England, and Massachusetts, who who bought 9.5 terawatt hours, which is just uh, <laughs> to say a lot. Um, it's about the uh, it's about what a nuclear power plant, a large nuclear power plant, would produce over the course of a year um, worth of hydroelectricity across that line, and and this is been a long time coming. I mean, Massachusetts has a, a law that was passed in, I think, 2008 called the Global Warming Solutions Act that says that they have to reduce their carbon output economy-wide by 25 percent by 2020 and then 80 percent by 2050. And those are legally binding targets. So if they miss them, they will be sued by environmental groups. And so they're very, very serious about getting it done. Uh, your podcast, Outside In, also focuses in on, on how hydropower Quebec came to be a symbol of the French-Canadian people. Explain that for us. Yeah, it's actually something that was, was, was fascinating to find out because, you know, <laughs> I think the experience that many of us have when we get our electric bills is is just sort of, you know, it's this... It's a company that is anonymous, and uh, we don't know much about it. The only interaction you t- typically have is when there's a power outage because of a storm, um, and and you know the 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 logo at the top is just something that you kind of rage against every time you have to pay that bill. But in Quebec, it it really is something that has come to symbolize this project of French Canadian nation building. Um, and it was a very deliberate campaign uh, that began in the 1960s during something called the Quiet Revolution, when French Canadians were, were again, very deliberately taking back uh, the institutions of Quebec that had heretofore been dominated by Anglo uh, and, and often American business interests. Um, and one of the things that they did in order to to uh, to to uh, achieve this goal was something called the 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 second nationalization. So they had already nationalized a few of the electric companies around Quebec City and Montreal. Um, but in 1962, there was this campaign uh, to that was basically a referendum where they asked the people, "Do you want to to buy all of the power companies in the province of Quebec and create a a you know?" Pr- 
provincially owned company that would employ French Canadians where where French would be spoken on the job sites, where French engineers would uh, would be able to get good jobs. And we would, uh, you know, build these these incredible, massive hydropower projects that that ultimately would power Quebec, but also would would uh, enrich the province by by selling power to its neighbors. Mm. There's a tension there. I understand nearly one-third of the dams that power this were built on the ancestral territory, the Pessimit Inu. Tell us about them. Yeah, so this is the first mega project that happened immediately after the nationalization of Hydro-Quebec. Um, there, there were already dams underway uh, on the Pessimit Inu's territory. And this is just to situate yourself, if you follow the, the Gulf of St. Lawrence north um, from Montreal, the, the, the dams sort of spread up. Uh, along the along the the St. Lawrence, and so um, these were you know the 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 first mega project was called the Manic Utard, so it dammed two rivers, the Manicouagan and the Utard rivers, and this was in the the 1960s into the 1970s. And when you talk to people from the Pessimist community who were who were around at that time, what they'll tell you is that they received no notification, they had no idea this project was coming, uh, and and there were people who literally told me the first time they heard. Heard about these dams was when they rounded the the bend in the river on their on their their annual migration to the to their hunting and trapping territories where they spend the winter and they found a worksite in progress on on this this ancestral uh, highway that they they'd used literally for hundreds of years to get to these territories. Uh, Sam, I think we um, have a Sam. We have a clip I think from uh, uh, a Pessimist elder that uh, was describing what you've just uh, mentioned. Let's hear that. Everything has, has been drowned. They lost uh, all their gears. Their camps were were flooded. Uh, the their equipment for to hunting equipment, trapping equipment was flooded. Their canoes, uh, the, the nets to 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 fish for 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 living for the living of their family. Everything was lost without any kind of compensation. So, Sam, tell us more about uh, who was speaking and, and what happened. Was there a settlement between Hydro-Quebec and the Pessimist? There was a settlement, and it was it's largely been seen as as somewhat abusive. Um, so it, this happened in 1973, and it was it was just before uh, the it was just as Hydro-Quebec was launching its second mega project, the James Bay, which uh, which was massive. And at this point, 50 percent of Hydro-Quebec's generating capacity is up at the James Bay. And so as Hydro-Quebec was moving on from that first mega project uh, to the second one, they they inked this deal that that many of the pessimists saw as being um, compensation for just a single power line that was crossing their territory. But in reality, what they what the deal said was we're going to give you 100, uh, excuse me, $200,000 for for all damages to your territory, past, present, and future. Um, and that worked out to something like uh, just about a little over $100 per person in the community. Um, and what makes this very striking is that just two years later, the Cree, who uh, hosts the James Bay Project, it's another First Nation farther north, um, they they signed a landmark deal called the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement after after successfully filing an injunction and getting work stopped at the James Bay Project um, that that compensated them with with millions of dollars. Uh, and later, that deal was renegotiated, and and <laughs> over the course of the decades, the Cree have earned 
almost $5 billion uh, in exchange for hosting hydropower on their territory. Whereas the Pessimate, uh, you know, had this one deal signed in 1973 that was just over $100 bucks per person. Mm. Has anything been done to make that situation uh, better for the pessimists? They have an ongoing lawsuit that that is has been working its way through the courts since 1998, uh, and it sort of moves in fits and starts whenever the community has enough money to hire lawyers to to uh, get things going. And um, you know, this is this is what I think is very interesting about this story is that you can care about climate change and think that we need to decarbonize our electric grid. Um, and and think that hooking up to Hydro-Quebec is, is a good way for New England to do that. But what you have to realize is that when we create those power lines, you don't get to choose which electrons we get. You, you are receiving electrons from uh, the, these projects that were built on pessimist territory with no notification and with very minimal compensation. Uh, but you might also be getting electrons from the the more modern projects, which benefit from the fight that the Cree undertook in the in the 90s. And now, uh, you know, communities vote before dams are built on their on their territory as to whether they're going to uh, cut a deal with Hydro Quebec as to whether they they agree that the construction should happen. Um, and you know, it's it's not a uh, problem free relationship, but it's much less fraught than it used to be. Uh, Sam Evans-Brown, we just have a couple of minutes, and I'm curious when we think about the buying power here in New England uh, with uh, hydropower and, and, and cheaper low-carbon electricity, uh, what what uh, role do we have to play in that relationship uh, that Quebec uh, has with its First Nations and how they are treated? That's a very interesting question, um, and it's it's actually very tough to say, but I can tell you what uh, people, the sort of decision makers in Massachusetts have told me when I asked them that question, and it, it, it can be summed up with the phrase, you know, siting is a local matter. Um, which is to say, if Canada wants to build these dams, it's their choice as to how it how it gets done. It's not for us to decide whether we believe they're a good idea or not. Um, and th- certainly, that's a convenient <laughs> stance to take if you if you would rather not uh, think about these issues north of the border. Um, I can tell you that in the past, in the 1990s, when the Cree were fighting against the damming of another river called the Great Whale, they brought their they brought their campaign against that dam down. South, and it was pressure from Americans that led to the cancellation of a contract with New York State, which ultimately led to the cancellation of the Great Whale Project. Mm. So, you know, certainly, certainly there is economic power that can be wielded, uh, sort of through pressure to to local representatives. We'll have to leave it there. But Sam Evans Brown, thank you so much, host of Outside In. We'll link to our uh, website so our listeners can check it out. Sam, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. He comes from New Hampshire Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Where We Live. Thanks to Kion Wolf, Xandra Allen, and producer Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.